0: Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for another opportunity in your house. We magnify your name, Jesus. We magnify your name, Jesus. Praise the Lord, everybody. Can you hear me? Anyone? Brother Matthew? If we could, there we go. Praise God. Better? Amen. We're getting there, folks. Praise the Lord. It's good to see everybody in the house of the Lord on Wednesday night. We're getting ready to look at our 20th lesson here of Revelation. We're in the 11th chapter tonight. If you wouldn't mind, let's pray over this before we dive in. Jesus, we thank you so much for another opportunity in your house. Lord, I ask you to help me to teach in a way that you can anoint. Help me to say everything you'd have me to say. Nothing more, nothing less. We ask that the seed of your word would fall on good ground tonight. Illuminate our understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As I was saying, we are tonight in our 20th lesson of the book of Revelation, and loving every minute of it, I hope, learning new things every week, diving into the book. By way of review, we uh, we discussed last week how um, we're in the middle of a pause, right? There's... Definite portions of Revelation that is action, and then there's a pause. Uh, chapter seven there was a pause, uh, and then there was more action as judgments are poured out, and then we reach Revelation, the last part of chapter ten, uh, or really chapter ten as a whole, and then the first portion here of chapter eleven is another pause. Last week. We remember, if you remember, uh, you see John, he sees a mighty angel. Uh, We discussed who that angel was. Um, The angel, uh, is he said it's another angel. The Greek word for another is another of the exact same kind. So John was was hearkening back to chapter 5 where he said he saw a mighty angel. So we believe that it was a mighty angel. Uh, We saw that the mighty angel was clothed in clouds. Had a face shining like the sun. He had one foot in the sea. He came down. He had one foot in the sea. He had another foot on land. Then we saw him uh, raise his, I believe it was his right hand, and he makes a vow. He vows a vow. And the vow that he vowed was that uh, essentially the wrath of God is going to be poured out. It's happening now is basically what. Um, he promises. Then we witness John. He gets a strange request. Uh, he's told to eat the scroll. We understood that the book that he ate was the title deed, if you will, to the earth. It's the one containing the seven seals. It's already been opened up. Um, as John eats it, part of it is uh, sweet. It's sweet to his taste, and then it becomes bitter uh, in his stomach. Um we talked about what all that <clears throat> what all that means. We understand that as Christians, uh there is a sweetness to the book of Revelation and the judgments that is being poured out. What what do we see? We see Christianity being vindicated uh, in the book of Revelation. We see Jesus being vindicated. We see Jesus uh taking back what is rightfully his and becoming Lord of all the earth. Jesus is king, he's going to reign and rule. Um, so that is all sweet to the believer, but it's also a little bit bitter. And what's bitter? The, the bitter part is that there really is a hell, and there really is judgment that is being poured out, and uh, anyone who is not worshiping Jesus as Lord um, is going to be lost. And so there is that bitterness uh, that's there as well. And so John eats that scroll and then John is told uh, to continue prophesying and the angel tells him that he's going to prophesy to many nations and tongues and peoples and we talked about last week how there was a time where that would have seemed a little far fetched especially for John who was writing this on the Isle of Patmos and yet here we are in 2021 Uh, In Oklahoma, we're studying the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has been studied all over the world. It's been translated into many different languages. So that is a prophecy uh, from the Word of God that's been fulfilled. And we see time and time again prophecy in the Word of God um, being fulfilled. And the angel says that you're not done, he tells John. John. Uh, It's almost like he's recommissioning him. He's given him new energy, new purpose. He says, you've got more to write. And so John continues uh, to write. And that leads us into uh, what we are talking about tonight. And that is chapter 11. Again, chapter 11 is a continuation of the break that is in the action of the book of Revelation. Um I theologians I, I read today found it interesting. They consider chapter 11 of the book of Revelation to be one of the toughest, if not the toughest to interpret, not only in the entire book of Revelation, but in the Word of God. Um, very difficult uh, portion of the Bible to interpret. We're going to look at the nature of the temple tonight. We're going to look at uh, who the two witnesses are. We're going to experience uh, an earthquake and uh, talk about uh, the effects of that. Let's look into the word of the Lord real quick. uh, Revelation 11, uh, there's only one revelation, Revelation 11, um, starting in verses 1 through 2. Let's go ahead and do that. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread under foot forty and two months. So John is given here some instructions, if you will, this, uh, these two verses here kind of set the tone, set the scene for the rest of the chapter as a whole. The first thing we notice is that John is given a rod or a reed. It's a, uh, something that's grown in that region. Usually they would grow about 10 feet. And so that was the standard of measurement in that day. They would use that as a, uh, a tool of measurement. Commonly used. And so John takes this, and John is told then to go and measure the temple. He's told to measure the altar, and he's told to measure uh, the worshipers. Now, this is not the first time in Scripture that we find someone measuring the temple or being instructed to measure uh, by God. If you read in Zechariah Zechariah uh chapter 2, we see a man who is measuring the temple. Uh, It seems like in that context that it was a sign of judgment, that God was was setting apart uh, that temple. He was signifying that He was getting ready to judge um, uh, Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 40, we find a temple being measured. In Revelation 21, uh, we're not there yet, but we will get there very soon, we find that New Jerusalem is measured. So various times throughout Scripture, God tells men uh, to measure. And uh, Wolverd, uh theologian, he notes that the act of measuring seems to signify that the area belongs to God in some special way. It is an evaluation of His property. So when you see this and you see uh, God telling um, John here to go measure the temple measure the altar, measure the worshipers that are therein, what's God telling him? He's saying, go and set apart, basically, that which is mine. The temple, John, that's mine. Go measure it, it's set apart. Even in the end times, even in the middle of wrath being poured out, God still has what is rightfully His. So John is instructed to measure the temple. He measures the temple and then he measures the altar. Let's look at the temple though. Because some people, when they read this, uh, me and Brother Dylan were just talking about before church, whether things should be interpreted symbolically or literally. Um, any chance that we get, we're going to interpret it literally, unless there's a clue uh, in the text that we shouldn't uh, do that. There are many who believe, however, this is symbolic. Again, I personally believe that we need to take a literal view Uh as often as possible unless scripture signifies otherwise so I believe during this time in the tribulation there's going to be a literal temple in Jerusalem and uh, John is told here to measure that out or that is set apart basically for Almighty God you look and I believe that the the Bible teaches this Daniel prophesied of a future. Uh, temple. He prophesied that in Daniel 9, 27. He prophesied it again, talks about it in chapter 12 of his book in verse 11. Jesus teaches uh, about the abomination of desolation um, being set up in the temple. Um, And what is that? That's the beast setting up his own image for the world to worship inside of this temple. That's going to happen later on in the book of Revelation. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he references a temple. So a temple, the idea of there being a literal temple, I think, is is taught throughout Scripture. Um, More than that, it's mentioned uh, five times the building of a temple. Just remember that I had that in there. I wanted you all to be able to look at this. I would... Right now, if I could, I would use my pointer here that I have on my fancy clicker, but it doesn't work on the screens that we have. Um, But the outer court is everything outside of those uh, four walls that you see there. What you see is you see the inner court and then the innermost court or the Holy of Holies, the most holy place that is there at the temple. So we talked about symbolic literal. We believe this is literal. Daniel prophesied about it. Jesus talked about it. Paul referenced it. Forgive me for for getting behind on these. And then we know that the temple uh, in Jerusalem is mentioned five uh, times in Scripture. The first mention of it, we know David wants to build a a house for the Lord. The Lord tells him, you can't build it. Uh, Solomon's going to build it. And so Solomon builds actually the first permanent um, building for the Lord, which was the temple or Solomon's temple. Then Zerubbabel uh, builds the second temple. And then there's a third temple that is built by Herod. Uh, All of these again in Jerusalem. And then there is a fifth temple that is going to be built in the millennial reign of Christ, and it's going to be built by the Lord himself. So where's the fourth temple? The fourth temple is what is mentioned here and it's going to be there, it's going to be rebuilt. We believe that it will be built, the, the Bible is not clear on it, it could be built um, before the rapture, it could be built after the rapture. But we know that during the tribulation, um, it's going to be built. So during the tribulation, there's going to be a temple, an actual temple, and uh, it's going to be an actual place for the Antichrist to set up. He's going to set up his image, the abomination of desolation, Scripture calls it, in the temple for the world to worship. Until that time, though, there are going to be Jewish believers um, in in Jesus and Gentile believers, whomever is saved at that time will be able to worship at that temple until the Antichrist uh, takes over and he's allowed to do that. Um, Before we dive into this really quickly, I'll leave it on this screen so you don't get confused. Uh, Who are the worshipers? Daniel is told, or John is told rather to measure out or set apart the worshipers. The worshipers, I believe, uh, that symbolizes what I just said. I believe it symbolizes faithful Israel, those Jewish believers uh, that we learned about in chapter seven, and those that, uh, Gentile believers, uh, during this time. I believe are, are going to be set apart for the Lord. And that's the that's the image that we're getting here when John is told to to measure them and to set them apart. Um, right, and we need to talk about the outer court. So the second verse there gives us more context. It says, but the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city, uh, shall they tread under their foot forty and two months. So the outer court was actually often called the uh, court of the Gentiles. And that is because that's as close as the Gentiles could get um, to the holy place and the holy of holies. They, they didn't have access any further than that. They only had access to the outer court. Um, and so we, we see that's there, but John is told not to measure that part off. And the reason he's told not to measure it off is because apparently at this time, Gentile, the, the Jerusalem as a whole is under Gentile control. And by Gentile control here, it's talking about wicked people. And so those that are under the sway of the Antichrist in that day, uh, are going to have control, and it says they're going to have control over this for three and a half years. Jesus, in Luke 21, actually predicts this. He predicts the control of Jerusalem by those that hate God and hate the people of God. So that day is coming. And so the, uh, God tells uh, John here that to not to measure that off. So he's only measuring off that which is his. And that is significant as we go along here uh, tonight. Let's look at the next few verses here. Verses 3 through 6. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the, uh, before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over uh, waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So, here we are. We are... Introduced to what the Bible uh, calls the two witnesses. First thing we have to look at is how long will they be here? How long will their ministry last? Uh, The Bible says that they're going to preach for 1,260 days or exactly three and a half years. So that's going to be their ministry on the earth where people are aware of them and they are preaching, uh, a, and they have a powerful, supernatural ministry. Um, supernatural, and, and we're talking beyond even what we know today is the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. But these two men are going to be supernaturally protected uh, by God, and to the point where even when they're attacked... Uh, God is going to step in and help them and give them power to survive in, in the middle of tribulation for uh, at least three and a half years. We ask, when will they minister? Um, good people debate uh, this issue. When will they be on the earth? Some people say uh, first three and a half years, others last three and a half years. Nobody's really sure. Uh, I tend to believe that it'll be the last three and a half years. Uh, the reason that I believe that is the first three and a half years is, is supposed to be relatively peaceful. Um, and the last three and a half years is supposed to be anything but that. And so the Antichrist is going to do his very best in the last three and a half years, uh, to take everything that is God's and to destroy everything that is God's. So, and why would they need protected in three and a half years of peace? I love it. Praise the Lord. No, you're okay. What would, uh, what would they need divine protection for if they were living through three and a half years of peace, right? So uh, reason, the, the, the mind that God has blessed us with tells us that this is probably going to be a time that is not peaceful. And so I would put them probably in the latter half of the tribulation, the great tribulation where judgment is being poured out and where people hate God and the things of God and uh, so forth. And so through divine protection, they survive for three and a half years preaching judgment, preaching the word of God. Um, how do we know that they are preaching judgment? Uh, I believe that we know that uh, they're wearing sackcloth. So sackcloth in Scripture, um, usually worn by those that are mourning by those that have a very serious, uh, message. They were put sackcloth and ash. Um, John the Baptist, when he came preaching repentance, he was wearing very simple, uh, clothing. So these men, I believe they're preaching a message of divine judgment, of divine, uh, but also mercy, right? Because they're, they're preaching God, God never preaches judgment without also reaching out with mercy. And so they preach this, uh, for three and a half years. The big question, though, uh, and the question most anybody who reads this chapter comes up with, there's they may not ask the first two questions. People may not even wonder how long they're going to be on the earth or uh, when they will minister, what part of the tribulation. But everybody wants to know who are the two witnesses? Who are these two men uh, that are witnessing In the last part of the tribulation, everyone loves to ask this question, and that's fine. Um, some see the two witnesses. We're gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna give you all the various views that I'm aware of tonight. Some believe that the two witnesses, uh, represent, they're symbolic, and they represent Israel and the church. And so when they read chapter 11 here, they see these two witnesses. They say these two witnesses are not, uh, real men but they are symbolic of uh, two groups of people. Others see them representing the church and the word of God. So one symbolizes the word of God, the other symbolizes um, the church. Others see them as symbolically uh, symbolically representing a host of other witnesses, just a host of the believers of that time that they are symbolically representing um, those. None of those views uh, that I just talked about right there, though, I don't believe that any of those are allowed by the context of Scripture. So, remember, good, good people can disagree over certain aspects of Revelation, but I believe this particular, calling them symbolic, uh, doesn't fit the context of Scripture at all. Uh, the reason is, is these two men, eventually they die um and what's more than that their bodies are left we'll talk about that in a little bit but it, they're literally left for 3 days out in the open for everybody to see um i just don't think that that can be symbolic right so we we're, we're talking about actual men who actually die uh it's i i don't think that uh, that there can be any symbolism of the church dying or the word dying um so we disagree with that uh we believe that this is a um These are two real flesh and blood people. So once you come to that conclusion, we can agree tonight, maybe, that these are two flesh and blood people. Then you've got to ask the question, who are these two people? So we know that they're two men, but which men are they? And again, there's a host of different arguments we're going to talk about the most popular um, tonight. There's there's really three popular main views, many argue that this is Moses and Elijah. Their reason for believing that it's Moses and Elijah is, uh, in, I believe it's verse six, it talks about them being able to, uh, to shut up the heaven, um, which Elijah did and, uh, perform Uh, Miracles such as turning water into blood and uh, using plagues, which Moses did. It it reminds us of Moses. So many people believe, okay, that's definitely Elijah and Moses then. Others would say, no, 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 no. It's not Elijah and Moses. It's Elijah and Enoch. And they would say, uh, you know that Hebrews, what is it? uh, Chapter 9 verse 27 says that all men are appointed once to die. Brother Jeff. So there are two men in the Bible who did not die. One's name's Enoch. Uh, the Bible says he walked with the Lord and was not. The other was Elijah. And Elijah, we know, got taken up uh, in a fiery chariot. Um, and so neither one of them saw death. So those two men, because they didn't see death, uh, now is the time. Um, these, are, uh, these are those men, Elijah and Enoch. However, there's two arguments that would um, maybe push back a little bit on, on that particular one. Number one, uh, if you believe in the rapture, and we hope that you would, uh, whether you're post-trib or pre-trib, hopefully you would believe in the rapture. We can agree on that, that there is going to be a rapturing of the church. If you believe that, then that would mean that you believe that there's going to be a whole host of people uh, that are not going to see death, Um in fact, Paul says, we that are uh, alive and remain will be caught up together in the air. The dead in Christ first, and then we we which are alive and remain. So, um, you don't have to see death. There is going to be a generation that doesn't see death, number one. And then number two, the Bible specifically says, and I, and I can't get the scripture off the top of my head, maybe I'll have it for the next lesson, but it talks about Enoch not tasting death. And so God protecting him from death. So if Enoch here dies, then we have a broken Bible and we can just throw the whole thing away. So probably not Enoch, probably not Elijah, uh, but maybe uh, that I think that if, if you're going to go with those views, one of those two views, then probably the most plausible would be Moses and Elijah. Those are the two that the Lord brought back uh, Mount of, the, of Transfiguration, had a conversation with him there. Um, so that's plausible, that's a plausible view. Then there's the other view, uh, which I would probably lean more towards, and that is that these are two men in that generation, whichever generation that is, whether that's our generation today or a generation 50 years from now, that there's two men in that generation that God raises up and supernaturally uh, anoints and empowers for this moment to be the two witnesses um, to fulfill the will of God whichever it is that you believe and here comes the here comes the uh the bad part right the hard part the deflating of the bubble if you will and that is uh, i've got to be an honest preacher tonight now there's some that just will get up here and they will just be like bless god that's the way that it is i believe that the bible supports it and and that's that but i'm going to be honest tonight and hopefully you respect that and here's the truth the bible does not tell us the names of these two men so we can, we can throw around theories and it's fun to do that and it's fun to look at that and I threw a few of them out there. But at the end of the day, I do think that we have to be humble enough to admit that we don't know and we won't know unless we are there at that time or the Lord reveals it in heaven in that day when we see Him. So those are, that's, that's the two witnesses. They're given supernatural power and they're given supernatural protection and they preach uh, for three and a half years. Um, anyone who tries to hurt them will be met with, again, a fiery death, scripture points out. Uh, they'll have power to shut up the heavens like Elijah and to wage war with plagues like Moses. So these guys for three and a half years are two gentlemen that you do not want to mess with. And yet there are going to be people who want to mess with them, and they try. And uh, the Bible, I, I, I really like how it says, it says, if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. So there's no option. If you try to hurt the men of God, they've got a purpose from God, then God is going to protect them and keep them, and that's the truth. That's that's true in every generation at all time. If God has got a purpose, a mission for a man of God, a woman of God, there's nothing in heaven or in earth, there's no demon in hell that can stop what God is going to do. And so in that day, literally, it says they must be killed after that manner. You mess with the men of God during three and a half years of wickedness and, and just lust and evil on an unprecedented level, God will sustain them and provide for them and protect them for those three and a half years. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. And I realize this is small. I hope you brought your Bible, but it was a lot to put on um, on one slide. Let's read the word of the Lord here. Verses 7 through 12. And when they shall have finished... Their testimony, speaking of the two witnesses, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their, bo- and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half. And shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of the life, uh, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood up upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. Amen. Death and resurrection. Here's the truth. True prophets always find themselves heartily hated. It's not something you can avoid. If you are a true prophet, there are our world is full of supposed prophets. You should be weary, weary, wary and weary. Both words. They work perfectly. Be wary and weary of supposed prophets, Brother Kendall, who only prophesy good things. If, well, praise God. Not sure what that was. I don't know if that was an amen or what. (laughs) We're going to count it as an amen. Be weary and wary of people, prophets, false prophets that only prophesy good things. You've got to be very careful of those. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, every time you hear... Uh, a prophet prophesy there are times that where there is blessing prophesied, but there are often um, probably the majority of time it is stuff that is tough to hear, tough to handle. You think about the book of Acts uh, today we want a seeker friendly church, uh, and the only way to to see revival is you can only preach. Uh, the grace and mercy and you can't preach against sin because if you preach against sin, people don't like it, people won't come. But when you read the book of Acts, Peter got up there on the day of Pentecost and Peter preached a tough message. He said, you're the ones who killed Jesus. And you talk about being direct. Today, we don't like naming sins, right? We don't like pointing out sins. We don't like talking about certain things. But Peter got up. Peter's not a false prophet. Peter's not somebody who's going to tickle your ears. Peter gets up there on the day of Pentecost, the first message from an anointed preacher uh, that is a part of the church of the living God, and he preaches against sin. And he says, you're the ones who killed Jesus. And it pricked them at their heart. It convicted them. Would there have been a revival on the day of Pentecost if, Jesus, or if Peter just got up there and just, and just said, you know, God is love? And that's the end of the story? And just, you know, join our club, be a part of our community? I, my guess is no. Peter got up there and under the unction of the Holy Ghost, he preached very hard against sin. And the Bible says it pricked them at their heart. And they, they looked at Peter and they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So because Peter had the courage to challenge the way that they were living, to challenge what they did to Jesus... It, the Holy Ghost was able to prick them and convict them, and He was able to give them the answer that you've got to be baptized in Jesus' name and fill with the Spirit. Amen. And that was only because a preacher had courage to preach against sin. So be careful of the preacher who only preaches about faith and worship and only good things. Those are all necessary. But we've got to have preaching today that's hard to hear so that we can be convicted, so our hearts can be drawn by the goodness of God to repentance. So the truth is, true prophets always find themselves because that kind of preaching is not liked. No one's a fan of that kind of preaching. No one's a fan of of being told that they're a sinner in need of a savior. Only those that the goodness of God is drawing to repentance are appreciative of that kind of preaching. So a prophet, a preacher that gets up there and, and declares the word of the Lord gets himself heartily hated, quickly hated. There's nothing worse. This is the truth. There's nothing worse to a wicked generation than a righteous preacher. There's nothing worse. It, it, it makes people mad. A man of God that gets up there and preaches the Word of God, it frustrates people. So here these men are, three and a half years, in one of the most wicked generations the world has ever seen. Similar, to, Jesus said, to the days of Noah. Noah, the world was so wicked, there was only one man that found grace in the eyes of God. His name was Noah. Everyone else died in a flood. Only Noah and his family survived. That's how bad the end of the world's gonna be. It's in that environment that these men had the courage for three and a half years to declare, Thus saith the Lord. And no doubt these men were hated, and because they were a thorn in the side of an evil world, can you imagine? Uh, being a sinner in that day, and you're having to deal with these men who there's nothing you can do to stop them. There's nothing you can do to shut down their message. Everyone who tries to stop them ends up dying. They die a, a terrible death, according to Scripture they're going to. It, it frustrating. Imagine being the Antichrist in that day. He was probably so angry at the, in fact, we know from Scripture that He's incredibly angry at what the two witnesses are doing, and yet God divinely protects them. But once their mission is accomplished, once their mission is complete, God removes His hand of protection. So they follow the will of God three and a half years, and then the job is done, the mission is complete. God takes His hand of protection off of them. And that's what we read in verses 7 through 12, what happens once the job is done. What happens once the hand of protection is lifted off of off of them. The beast, the Bible says, makes war against them. Ultimately, he kills them. Who is the beast? We believe this is the Antichrist. The Antichrist that has been so frustrated for three and a half years He's doing everything he can, no doubt, during the three and a half years to stop these men from preaching the word of the Lord, from testifying about the Lord and the word of the Lord and the truth. And finally, he has his moment after three and a half years, and he wages war against them, and he is victorious. The next thing that happens, their bodies are left in the streets. This world is so cruel and so wicked that after killing these two men, they the Bible says they refuse burial to them. They will not allow them to be buried. They leave them in the middle of the street. All the world watching. And what's... That's bad, right? Like, that's really bad. But what m- may be worse is what happens next. They They aren't just leaving their body there to rot in the middle of the street. But the Bible says they start celebrating and rejoicing and giving gifts to each other because the thorn that has been in their side, the man of God, the men of God that have been preaching for three and a half years have finally been killed. And so these wicked people, they leave their bodies out there on the ground for three and a half years, for three, for three days rather, three and a half days, And they celebrate and they rejoice during this time. And then, me and Brother Dylan were talking about this earlier. What's going to happen? Because maybe it's possible that during these three and a half years uh, of their preaching, that the certainly if the media is anywhere near the same, and we've got to believe that they're going to be uh, even worse then, they might stifle the message of these preachers somehow. Or at least they, they will try to, from reaching the nations. But the Bible specifically says that the nations, the people during this time are all watching the dead bodies. So all over the world, so not only the people that are in Jerusalem, not only those people are celebrating and, and worshiping and giving gifts because of the death of these two men, but people all over the world are watching as their bodies are just laying there in the street. What happens next? These men all of a sudden sit straight up and get to their feet. And the whole world is going to be watching this because they're all celebrating. There's no way that they can stop uh, what is going to happen before everyone's eyes. Lord breathes the breath of life back into these two men and they stand up and He calls them to heaven and their raptured home. An incredible testimony to the goodness and greatness and the power of Almighty God in that day. Do you think the people in that day are ready to repent? you think that they're ready to to give up and get right with God after seeing such a great display of His power and, and, and His authority? Absolutely not. We know that they're going to continue as is. Let's look at the last uh, two verses of our study tonight. Verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13, In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. And the second is past, the second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Ah, After this happens, God sends a great earthquake and it hits the city and it kills 7,000 and then, and then the people. Now, we can debate, we can argue whether or not Scripture is implying that this is a genuine turning of the heart, genuine worship. We can debate that, but what the Bible does say is because of fear, They start worshiping and giving glory and acknowledging the God of heaven. They wouldn't do it before. Nothing would cause them before. But after seeing these two men rise from the dead and be raptured to heaven, and then an earthquake after that hits the city and kills 7,000 men all over Jerusalem and all over the world, they begin to worship and give glory to the God of heaven. And then lastly tonight, we look, if the music wants to come, I'm coming to a close. Sister Melanie may have stepped out. If you, want to, if you want to stand, we're coming to a close. We look at verse 14, and we're, giving, we're given a sobering thought. The sobering thought is, the second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. There's more that's coming there's more that's coming that's getting ready to hit the world and what did the angel say the angel said whenever he raised his right hand the mighty angel and he made a vow he said that he was going to pour out essentially god is going to get he's getting ready to pour out his wrath unmeasured because he's going to take back the world and he's going to be king he's going to set himself up as king and what a great and glorious and awesome and wonderful day that is Amen. Aren't you thankful to be serving the king of the universe tonight? I don't know about you, but I read this and I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged because I know who Jesus is. I'm encouraged tonight because what I just read in, in the Bible is that in the middle of the, the most wicked generation the world has ever seen, God is going to sustain and provide and protect Two preachers, two men of God for three and a half years declaring the Word of God and there's nothing the world can do to stop them. And that tells me that today that God has the power and He can do it. If God gives us a mission, a mandate, God can sustain and protect and provide. God's able. And then I read and I'm looking at it and and Jesus is getting ready. And in the future weeks we're going to see this and I love it. I love what's coming next week. I hope that you're here next week, Wednesday night, Bible study. I hope you're ready. Jesus is getting ready to be Lord of all. I am so thankful that Jesus is going to reign as King, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. But as I'm reading this tonight, you know what I'm more thankful for? And it just hit me while I was studying. Brother Jeff, I'm thankful I don't have to wait. I don't have to be one of those that it takes the world falling apart and it takes two men being destroyed and then raised up from the dead and then raptured to heaven and then an earthquake hitting the city to cause me to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. I know Him today as Lord and Savior. He's filled me with His Spirit. I've been baptized in His name. I'm thankful today that I have an opportunity to worship Jesus as King right now. I can declare Jesus right now, today, Wednesday, 2021 of November, that Jesus is Lord of my life and that Jesus is King and Jesus sits on the throne of my heart. I'm thankful today. There are going to be people who won't worship Him until all else fails, until there's nothing left. And they have to worship him by force because my Bible says that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will not be a person in the history of the world at that day that will be able to look at Jesus and not bow and not confess that he's Lord. But you know what we're doing tonight? We are standing here and we're willingly confessing Jesus. You are Lord of all. And you're the king of my heart.